What's better is one day in your courts than thousands elsewhere. You're listening to an audio teaching from Cross Connection Church Houston. We're a small church located in Pasadena, Texas, and it is our mission to save the lost, equip the saved, serve both the lost and saved, and to send the equipped. To this end, we teach through the Bible on a verse-by-verse basis, starting at the beginning of a book and working until the end. If you would like to learn more about our church, you can find us at connectedtojesus.org or check us out on Facebook at Cross Connection Church Houston. We pray that this teaching would grow you in the grace and love of Jesus Christ our Lord. Looking at the life of Jacob, and the first thing that we noted with Jacob was the meaning of his name. He was named Heel Catcher because remember his brother Esau, his twin, came out first, and while his brother's coming out, he grabs his brother's heel and he's given that name. But in that culture, uh, that name had the idea of a schemer, a trickster, a deceiver. And as we've gone through his life so far, we've seen that he's unfortunately lived up to that part of his name. Uh, Throughout his life, we've seen him scheming. We've seen him deceiving to get his way. We saw it with his brother and the birthright and his brother's hungry. And he says, oh, you know, can I have some of your stew? And he says, well, you know, sell me your birthright. I'll give you some stew. Give me your birthright. And, you know, then he deceives his father by putting the animal skin on his uh, hands and his neck and, you know, getting his brother's clothes and making that food and ultimately getting the blessing from his dad. And so he's been a man who has uh, lived up to the name of, you know, someone who's a deceiver, but it had consequences, some significant ones after he stole what was his older brother's. His brother wants to kill him. Uh, and when his brother wants to kill him, his mom says, hey, you need to go to my my brother Laban, you need to leave here because Esau is going to kill you. And so he departs and he goes to Laban and he finds out that Laban's an even bigger deceiver and schemer than he was. And he spends 20 years, 20 years he's with Laban. Remember, his mom thinks this is going to be for a little bit of time. 20 years has gone by and he's been in Laban's school of hard knocks and he's learned a bit of a taste of his own medicine and he's been deceived, he's been tricked, he's been taken advantage of. And through all of this, God has been helping him see and learn and grow. Um, And with it all, there's still one big issue in Jacob's life that he hasn't been willing to give up. And that is his own trust and reliance on himself. You know, he, he's, he's recognized that the deception in his life was wrong. He personally experienced that. There's, there's been change, but there's not the change of, you know what, I'm going to relinquish the reliance. I'm going to relinquish trust. I'm going to give it to God and stop depending on myself. And so in chapter 32 tonight, we're going to see God change a very stubborn, self-reliant man in Jacob to someone who finally gets to a place where he realizes, I have to give my dependence to God. We're going to see six responses from Jacob in this chapter. First, Jacob's going to recognize that he's not alone. Second, he's going to request a peace with Esau. Third, he's going to react in panic. Fourth, he's going to realize his need to pray. Fifth, he's going to resume his plotting. And the most important part of all is six, he's going to wrestle with God. So everything in this chapter is leading up to this wrestling match between God and Jacob, where God is ultimately going to change Jacob uh, and teach him some important lessons uh, in life. 
Now, remember last chapter ended with God protecting Jacob from Laban. And Laban was someone that Jacob and, you know, had all sorts of problems with, but God protects him. And they ultimately make this covenant and they build this pillar and they come to this conclusion. Hey, you don't come past this pillar, Jacob, from the promised land this way to do me harm. And Laban, you don't come past from where you are. And we'll kind of just have this pillar. Neither of us are going to pass it to hurt each other. Uh, and so God has brought that protection. But now Jacob and his family are headed back to the promised land, but they're headed towards Esau. Uh, and they have a big problem in going towards Esau. Now, remember back in chapter 27, right before all this started, Jacob's mom shared something with him before you know, he even comes to Laban. She says this in chapter 27, verse 42. And the words of Esau, her older son, were told to Rebekah. So she sent and called Jacob, her younger son, and said to him, Surely your brother Esau comforts himself concerning you by intending to kill you. Now therefore, my son, obey my voice. Arise, flee to my brother Laban in Haran, and stay with him a few days until your brother's fury turns away, until your brother's anger turns away from you, and he forgets what you have done to him. Then I will send and bring you from there. So notice Rebecca says, hey, you go to my brother Laban. You'll just be there for a little while. Once your brother Esau calms down, he's really upset with what you've done. He wants to kill you. But, you know, once he finally gets to that place where, you know, he, he's okay, I'll send word. You can come back and everything will be great. The problem is in the last 20 years, guess what? She's never sent word. She's never tried to bring him back because why? Esau still wants to kill his brother. You know, nothing's changed. And so as Jacob's heading back, he has to realize, wait a second, mom told me if Esau finally got to a place where he was willing to receive me back, that she would send word so I could come back to the promised land. That's never happened. And so as he's heading back to the promised land, there's got to be this fear of Esau still wants me dead. Esau still wants to do me harm. And so as he's leaving, I'm sure there's a lot of um, concerns that he has. He just got done with God rescuing from Laban, but it's kind of the old saying, you know, out of the firing pan into the fire. He's actually going into something that could be far worse for him as he encounters Esau, who wants to kill him. Now, during this journey, God is going to help Jacob sees some very important things about God and what God's doing to protect and take care of Jacob. And so let's start here, chapter 32, uh, verses 1 and 2. It says this, So Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met him. When Jacob saw them, he said, This is God's camp, and he called the name of that place Mahanaim. So Jacob just left Laban, the problem of Laban, and now he's heading towards the Esau problem. And as he's on his journey, he encounters something amazing. He is met by these angels. And when he sees these angels, he says, this is God's camp. And he names the place Mahanaim, which means two camps. He's realizing, hey, it's not just me and my family that are here. That's one camp. We also have a second camp. We have the camp of angels that are here as well. And so he realizes, hey, we're not alone. You know, God has his angels here with us, and this was something very important for Jacob to recognize because, you know, he's in trouble here. You know, he's concerned about the reality of what's coming his way, and he needs to know that he's not alone and that God is with him. Now, the reality is, this has always been the case. These angels have always been there. This isn't something new. This is just something new that Jacob has 
come to discover. Uh, God has revealed it to him, and he would have never known if the angels didn't reveal it to him. The angels didn't make themselves known. He would have still thought it was just him and his family all alone, but now God helps him see this important reality that he isn't alone and that there are angels in this spiritual realm around him. Now, this is something that's so important for us to understand, and oftentimes we're, we're blind to it because you know, the, the spiritual realm isn't something we see with our physical eyes. Um, but there's a story in 2 Kings chapter 6 that is a good reminder of the reality of, of knowing that there's this angelic army that is with us, especially in the midst of difficulty like Jacob is experiencing. The king of Syria, he sends an army to capture Elisha the prophet, because Elisha the prophet was getting a word from God about the Syrian king and what he would do, and and he kept being able to thwart the Syrian king wants to come against the the nation of Israel, and Elisha gets, oh, he's doing this, he's doing that, and so the Syrian king says, fine, send an army, and I want you to bring me that prophet. And so this big army comes to Elisha's house, and I want you to know now what we're told in 2 Kings chapter 6, verses 15 through 17. And when the servant of the man of God arose early and went out, there was an army surrounding the city with horses and chariots. And his servant said to him, Alas, my master, what shall we do? So he answered, Do not fear, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And Elisha prayed and said, Lord, I pray, open his eyes that he may see. Then the Lord opened his eyes and the young man, and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. So the Syrian army comes to Elisha's house and his servant gets up in the morning. He walks outside and he sees this huge army and he's obviously very fearful. And he goes back in and he asks Elisha, what are we going to do? I mean, there's this army here. You know, they're coming for you. He's panicking. And Elisha's just cool and calm. And he says, you know what? Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And he must be looking around the room thinking like, uh, there's you and there's me and there's this huge army. What are you talking about? Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And then Elisha prays, God, open his eyes. Help him to see the spiritual realm. Help him to see the angels that are here with us. And God does open up the servant's eyes and he sees that all the mountains around are full of these chariots of fire, these angelic beings who are there with them. And all of a sudden he goes from fear to, oh, we're okay. You know, we got this angelic army here and this Syrian army is toast and we don't have to worry because God is here to take care of us. And this is something that, Jacob needed to see, and God makes it aware to him. Hey, you're not alone, Jacob. I have these angels here. They're going to take care of you. And this is something that we need to understand as well. God's angels are watching over us. John Patton, a missionary to the New Hebrides Islands, told of one night these hostels came, and he had a a missionary home and a missionary church there. And it's just him and his daughters and his wife, and they surround the place, and they just start praying, and they're fearful of what's going to happen. And and all night long they're praying, and these you know savage tribes there, and they never attack. And about a year later, the the, uh, chief of this tribe gets saved, and John comes to him and goes, you remember that night when you guys surrounded our house? You know, why didn't you attack? And he says, oh, well, because of all those men that were there. And he's like, what are you talking about, those men that were there? It was just my wife and my daughter and me. And he's like, no, 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 there was all these men with swords. And, And he goes on this whole description. Obviously, he saw angelic beings protecting this Christian man in his home, and 
there were definitely two camps there that night. Uh, and now Jacob is discovering this same truth. So the first response from Jacob in this chapter is he recognizes he's not alone because God's angels were with him. And something so important for us to recognize as well. We are not alone. God's angels are with us. Now we're going to see the second response from Jacob in verses 3-5. through Then Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother, in the land of Seir, the country of Edom. And he commanded them, saying, Speak thus to my lord Esau. Thus your servant Jacob says, I have dwelt with Laban and stayed there until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, and male and female servants. And I have sent to my, tell my Lord that I may find favor in your sight. So Jacob, he, on this journey, he sends messengers before him. This is a 500-mile journey. You know, it's going to take a while for him to, all, to get to the promised land. He's got, you know, all these kids and all the livestock and everything. So he sends some messengers ahead of him to Esau. And he sends them with, you know, a message that he wants Esau to hear. And he's basically wanting Esau to know two things. First, I've acquired plenty of wealth when I've been away at Laban's. I have all these donkeys. I have all this cattle. I have, I have all this stuff. And this would be very important, he feels, for Esau to know. Because remember, the thing that he stole, the birthright and the blessing, now he's the one who's supposed to get the double portion of the inheritance. And his dad was quite wealthy. So Esau has been back with all the possessions of his father while Jacob has been away. And when Jacob returns, he is the rightful heir now because of the blessing to get a double portion of that. So he could come and say, Esau, thank you. This is now mine. And so he wants Esau to know, hey, I got plenty of stuff. I got plenty of wealth. I don't need yours. I'm not coming to take from you. I'm not coming to take your stuff. God has blessed me these last 20 years as I've been away with Laban. So that's one thing he wants him to know. The second thing that he wants Esau to know is he he wants to find favor in Esau's sight. Ultimately, he's wanting to be reconciled with his brother. So the second response from Jacob in this chapter is he requests a peace with Esau to try and reconcile with him. You know, when we sin against someone, because that's what Jacob did, he sinned against his brother. When we do that, we should seek to find peace with that person, to have reconciliation with that person, and we should initiate it. You know, if we're the one who have sinned, then we should come to that person seeking to be reconciled, seeking to ask for forgiveness and have that relationship come back together. But something that you will discover if you haven't yet, maybe you already have, it's something that Jacob is going to discover The longer you wait to reconcile with someone, the worse it usually gets. It's been 20 years. 20 years for Esau to kind of fester over all that Jacob did to him and what he lost in that. And, you know, Jacob should have dealt with this right away, but he's gone. He left. It's been 20 years. And he thinks, you know, I'm just going to come and I'll say my sorry and everything will be great. Well, I'm sure that you've realized when you let things go, in your marriage, you know, you let things go one day, one week, one month. It just gets bigger and bigger. The problems get worse and worse. And so the longer we wait to reconcile, the worse it becomes. And sometimes it gets so long that it becomes very difficult because the other party is no longer willing to reconcile. The Bible gives us some important truths about reconciliation. Jesus says this in Matthew chapter 5, verses 23 and 24. Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, 
Leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Proverbs 18, 19, a brother offended is harder to win than a strong city and contentions are like the bars of a castle. When you and I sin against someone, we do something hurtful and we say something mean, whatever it is, some kind of sin that we do, the quicker that we come and seek reconciliation, the quicker that we apologize, the better. Because when we put it off, it becomes more and more difficult for that to come together. Well, now we're going to see the third response from Jacob in verses 6 through 8. Then the messengers returned to Jacob saying, We came to your brother Esau. And he also is coming to meet you. And 400 men are with him. So Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed, and he divided the people that were with him and the flocks and the herds and camels into two companies. And he said, if Esau comes to the one company, attacks it, then the other company which is left will escape. So Jacob sends the messengers way ahead of him and they get all the way to Esau. They share the message. Hey, I want reconciliation. I got all this wealth. And they come back, and he sees them coming back, and I'm thinking, oh, yes, it's so great. Esau's going to be happy to see me. You know, we're going to reconcile. Everything's going to be great. And they say, actually, Esau's coming to you, Jacob. Oh, he is wonderful. You know, we're going to have a nice big reunion. And he's got 400 men. What? Why is he bringing 400 men? Well, now Jacob all of a sudden gets very concerned, realizing, hey, Esau might be coming to do me serious harm. And so notice what he does. He's now starting to panic because of the reality of what might come. And so he divides all he has into two companies. Now, I find this interesting because we just learned just a moment ago, the angel comes, this group of angels there, and he says, oh, two camps. There's my camp and the camp of angels that are watching over me. It seems like he's kind of forgotten about them because now he's dividing himself into two camps for the purpose of if one camp is attacked by Esau, then the other can get away. And so now he's kind of come up with his own scheme, his own way to protect himself. Instead of trusting in the one who just protected him from Laban, trusting in the angelic force that's there with him, he's come up with his own schemes, his own self-reliance, his own trust, and his own concept of what's going to protect him, which is the third response we see here from Jacob in this chapter, that he reacts in panic and tries to protect himself instead of trusting God to protect him. You know, so often when we face some difficulty or danger, this is how we respond. Instead of trusting God, instead of depending on God, we start to panic. We start to get all flustered and panic and, oh, what am I going to do? And how am I going to take care of this thing? And how am I going to protect myself? And how am I going to protect my family? And we you know, get all flustered and panicked over it. And we come up with these different schemes. You know, our schemes never do what trusting in God can do. Our schemes never accomplish what faith and trust and dependence on God can do. He's a much better protector of us than we will ever be. Well, now we're going to see the fourth response from Jacob in verses 9 through 12. Then Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, The Lord who said to me, return to your country and to your family, and I will deal with you. I'm not worthy of the least of all the mercies and of all the truth which you have shown your servant. For I crossed over this Jordan with my staff, and now I've become two companies. 
Deliver me, I pray, from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, lest he come and attack me and the mother of my mother with the children. For you said, I will surely treat you well and make your descendants as the sands of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. I love what Jacob does here. We see that he starts this, you know, here's the news. Esau's coming with 400 men and he starts to panic and he starts to freak out and he comes up with his own schemes of how to protect himself. But it seems like he comes to his senses here and now all of a sudden he does what he should have done to begin with. He starts to pray. And his prayer is a great prayer. There's three things in this prayer that I think are are wonderful examples for us whenever we're praying, but especially when we're praying in in some kind of difficult circumstances where we're fearful of what's going to happen. You know, the first thing that Jacob does is he quotes God's word and he quotes God's promises. In verse 9 and verse 11, we see Jacob quoting things that God said to him. Return to your country and your family and I will deal well with you. That's something that God told Jacob. I will surely treat you well and make your descendants as the sand of the sea which cannot be numbered for multitude. So he's like, God, remember you said this to me. I can't be multiplied if I'm dead. I can't do this unless you take care of me. And so he's realizing the promise of God and how the promise of God can't be fulfilled if Esau is successful in wiping him and his family out. And so as he's praying, he's bringing this promise. He's bringing the word of God to the Lord. And I think this is such a healthy thing for us to do when we pray. And we don't pray, you know, quoting promises or quoting the word of God to remind God. God didn't forget. God still knows. We don't do it for God's benefit. We do it for ours. It's good for us to be reminded. We say these things to remind ourselves, and I'm sure it's a great reminder here of, you said this to me, Lord. I need to trust this. I'm struggling with it. I'm panicking, but you you told me that you protect me. You told me you make me a great nation. And so this is something that I think is so important for us to do as we come to the Lord to quote the Word of God, to quote His promises for our benefit so it deepens our trust. So that we come to a place where we say, hey, I truly believe that God will do this. And so the first thing we see in Jacob's prayer is he comes just really, it's a it's a prayer focused on the word of God. The second thing we see, which is even better for Jacob because it's something he greatly struggled with, is he prays in humility. A man that was prideful, a man that was a schemer, a man that was self-reliant, he comes to God in humility. Notice what he says in verse 10. I am not worthy of the least of all the mercies and of all the truth which you have shown your servant, for I crossed over this Jordan with my staff, and now I become two companies. Jacob understood, I'm not worthy, God, for your protection. I'm not worthy for you to answer this request. I'm not worthy for you to deliver me. I'm not worthy of anything that you've given me. I'm not worthy of the protection that you already did with Laban. He recognizes I'm not worthy of what you have blessed me with or what I'm asking you to bless me with. And this is such an important thing to have as we come to God in prayer because so often that's not the case. Oh, we have a good week and we've been reading our Bible and we've been given to the Lord and we've been given of our time and we've been helping out people that are in need. And all of a sudden we start praying and we think, well, Lord, you know, it's time to give me my kickback here. Look at how good I've been doing. I deserve this. I've had a great week. And so now I expect you to give to me this and to give to me that. And we're praying with this, you know, mindset that I have earned and I have deserved and you need now to 
basically reward me for my wonderful behavior instead of just coming to the Lord in humility saying, I will never deserve what you have given me, what I'm asking you to give me, and what you might give me in the future. Just come in humility, recognizing I am not worthy of anything that you will ever give. And this is a great place that Jacob's in, and it's starting to get him to a place we're going to see here at the end of this chapter where there's a significant change in him. And this humility is part of that. This, this prayer of humility is, is preparing him for that. But he also, thirdly, does another thing in his prayer. And he comes to God in boldness. Notice what he says in verse 11. Deliver me, I pray, from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, lest he come and attack me and the mother with the children. Well, notice Jacob first understands, I'm not worthy but yet I'm still going to boldly ask. I'm not worthy of anything, but Lord, I know I deceived my brother. I know if anyone deserves to be hurt by Esau, it's me for all that I've done. I'm not worthy, but yet I'm still going to boldly come and ask you to intervene here. I'm going to boldly come to you and say, Lord, I have a need. Can you help me? You know, this is something that we need to, to have that balance, to recognize the humility that God wants us to approach him in but he also says, come boldly to my throne of grace where you can find mercy and help in your time of need. And so I think Jacob is, is starting to see that balance. I'm going to come in humility, but I'm also going to come boldly because I have access to you and I'm going to ask for you to help me in this area that I need help in. So the fourth response that Jacob gives us here is he realizes he needs to pray and prays a prayer in humility and boldness that is focused on God's word. You know, one of the most important things that we need to realize as believers in Jesus Christ is our need to pray. And this is, I would say, of all the privileges that we have been given, this is the most neglected by most Christians. It's this recognition that I need to do this. I have this privileged access to God. I have the privileged power of prayer, but yet I got to take advantage of it. I got to do it. And yeah, it's great to do it by quoting the word of God, by coming in humility, by coming in boldness, but we got to actually do it. And this is the issue that I think so often we, we start with panicking when problems come. And that's our natural fleshly inclination. And yet then all of a sudden the spirit of God starts working in our heart. And we realize, no, I got to stop panicking. I got to start praying. And then all of a sudden things start to change. And that's what we need to do. We need to recognize the importance of prayer, and follow this great example of quote God's word. Let it bring you uh, comfort. Let it encourage your faith. Come in humility and come in boldness. Well, now we're going to see the fifth response from Jacob in verses 13 through 21. So he lodged there that same night and took what came to his hand and as a present for Esau, his brother, 200 female goats and 20 male goats, 200 ewes and 20 rams, 30 milk camels with their colts, 40 cows and 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys and 10 foals. Then he delivered them to the hand of his servant, every drove by itself, and said to his servant, Pass over before me and put some distance between successive droves. And he commanded the first one, saying, When Esau, my brother, meets you and asks you, saying, To whom do you belong and to where are you going? Whose are these in front of you? Then you shall say, they are your servant Jacob's. It's a present sent to my Lord Esau, and behold, he is also behind us. So he commanded the second and the third, and all who followed the drove, saying, In this manner you shall speak to Esau when you find him, 
and also say, Behold, your servant Jacob is behind us. For he said, I will appease him with the presents that go before me, and afterward I will see his face, and perhaps he will accept me. So the presents went on over before him, but he himself lodged that night in the camp. Jacob, unfortunately, right after this great prayer, gets right back to resuming his plotting. He schemed and he had this idea of how he is going to protect himself. We're going to make two camps and, you know, if Esau attacks one, then the other will get away. And, oh, Lord, now I'm going to pray and I'm going to come to you. Deliver me. Okay, now that I've prayed that prayer, all right, now I've got to figure out how I'm going to deliver myself again. And so this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to send a bunch of my servants with all sorts of cattle, and they're going to go in different groups, and they're going to come. And when Esau says, who are you? Where you come from? Oh, we're from Jacob, and this is for you, and he's coming. And the next group will come. They'll say, where are you coming from? Well, this is, we're from Jacob, and this is a present for you. And, and he's hoping that as each one of these you know, groups come and offer the present to Esau, it's going to appease him. And finally, when he gets to Jacob, that anger that's there, he's finally going to say, you know what? I came to kill you, but we're all good. He, he's once again trying to come up with his own way of protecting himself. Once again, we see... Jacob trusting in himself instead of trusting in God. And the fifth response from Jacob in this chapter is he resumes his plotting, revealing that he did not trust God to answer his prayer. You know, sadly, we so often do this when we pray. We pray for things like protection, provision. We pray for things like, you know, deliverance as Jacob's praying. And then right when we say amen, through our actions, we demonstrate we don't really believe that God's going to answer that prayer in any way, shape, or form. Oh, oh, Lord, I'll ask you, but I don't really think you're going to do it. And that's why now that I'm done praying, I'm going to go back to my plotting and and, and figuring out how I can take care of myself because I don't really believe you're going to deliver me. Uh, Lord, please deliver me. Okay, now that I'm done, let me go deliver myself. George Mueller, a great man of faith and prayer, was once asked, what's the most important part of prayer? He replied, the 15 minutes after I said, amen. George Mueller realized that the thing that would show how much he actually believed in what he prayed is what he did right after he was done. If I really believe it and I'm praying for protection, then when I'm done, I'm going to hold on to that. I'm going to believe that. It's going to be seen in the way in which I act. If I pray for provision, when I'm done, I'm not going to try to scheme of, you know, how can I provide for myself? No, I trust the Lord, and it's going to be seen when I'm done my prayer, how I act, whether I truly believed it or whether I don't. If Jacob really believed what he prayed, if he really believed God would protect him and deliver him, then he wouldn't be responding by resuming his plotting. He wouldn't have responded and try to protect himself with his own schemes. If he really trusted God, he'd be at the head of this procession to meet Esau, not at the end, hoping that all the gifts leading up to it would appease his brother. If he really trusted, hey, God, I prayed this, you're going to deliver me. I'm going to be the one out front. I'm just going to go and meet my brother and deal with this and trust that you and that angelic army that's been with me, the God who protected me from Laban, I'm going to believe this and I'm going to move forward and act upon it. But we see from his actions, he didn't really believe that God was going to answer his prayer. Well, this is the big issue that he has. This is the issue that God wants to finally rid him of, his self-reliance, his trust in himself. And so now we're going to see the final thing that 
Jacob does here, which is he's going to wrestle with God, but God's going to use this time to really deliver him from his self-reliance. Verse 22 through 32 says this. And he rose that night and took two wives, his two female servants, his 11 sons, and crossed over the ford of Jabbok. He took them and sent them over the brook and sent over what he had. Then Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of day. Now when he saw that he did not prevail against him, he touched the socket of his hip, and the socket of Jacob's hip was out of joint as he wrestled with him. And he said, let me go, for the day breaks. But he said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. So he said to him, what is your name? He said, Jacob. And he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have struggled with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked, saying, tell me your name, I pray. And he said, why is that you asked about my name? And he blessed him there. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, for I have seen God's face to face and my life is preserved. Just as he crossed over Peniel, the sun rose on him and he limped on his hip. Therefore, to this day, the children of Israel do not eat the muscle that shrank, which is on the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip and the muscle that shrank. So Jacob takes his family. He sends them over the fort of Jabbok. And now he's all by himself. They're all there. And he's left alone. And now he's in this place all alone where God says, great. Now it's time for me to deal with you, Jacob. For the last 20 years, I've been trying to teach you things in Laban's School of Hard Knocks. You've been learning lessons here and there, but there's still one very important lesson that you won't learn even in the midst of all of this, and this is the lesson of your own self-reliance, your own trust in yourself. You won't trust me, and so now God is going to deal with this in Jacob's life, and he does it in a very interesting way, and I think a very suitable way for Jacob to learn and to change from. And so the first thing I want you to notice here, we're told that a man wrestled with Jacob until the breaking of the day. And notice who initiates this wrestling match. It's not Jacob. It's this man. He comes and he starts the wrestling match with Jacob. Jacob Is this this place where God says, you know what, I want all of your proud self-reliance. I want all of this fleshly dependence on yourself. I want to take that from you, and and I'm going to do that through this process of this wrestling match. Now, as the following verses show, and most commentators agree, as we've seen already in the book of Genesis, this is another uh, instance where many believe that this is a special appearance of Jesus in the Old Testament before his incarnation in Bethlehem wrestling um, Jacob, but no matter what you kind of come to in this conclusion, obviously God has sent someone uh, to wrestle with Jacob. And in verse 30, we're told, for I have seen God face to face and my life is preserved. That's why people come to the conclusion that this must have been, you know, um, Jesus' appearance in the Old Testament. But God comes and wrestles Jacob And notice this wrestling match goes on until the break of day. So all night long, there's this wrestling match happening between Jacob and God. And I think God allowed this wrestling match to go on all night because he wanted Jacob to give it all he had. He wanted Jacob to see that, you know what, you're nothing in comparison to me. Give me all your efforts. Give me everything you got, Jacob. Come on, show me everything that you have to fight me. Because ultimately, he wants Jacob to realize, you don't have enough. 
You can't do it. You need to come to a place where you stop relying on yourself. You need to come to a place where you stop trusting in yourself and you start recognizing how powerful I am in comparison to you, how much greater I am in comparison to you. You've got to come to a place where you're willing to depend on me and stop depending on yourself. So come on, keep wrestling me. Let's, let's see what you have. And all night long, this match takes place. And it seems like Jacob's doing a good job. It seems like, man, they're, they're, they're evenly matched, but that's just in appearance. God's just allowing this to happen. God could have won the match easily at any time using supernatural power, and that's exactly what happens. Finally, when God thinks it's done, he just touched Jacob's hip, and boom, it's over. The wrestling match is done. Jacob's no longer able to wrestle, and God just kind of helps him see, hey, <laughs> look at what I can do versus what you can do. You know, sometimes we feel that man really can contend with God. We feel that a man or woman in rebellion against God might do pretty well. In appearance, we might see that or think that, but in reality, that's not the case at all. God can turn the tide at any moment, and He only allows the match to go on for His own purposes. He only allows things to continue because oftentimes he's wanting to teach. Oftentimes he's wanting to do something for his own glory, his own benefit. But at any moment, if he wants to end it, he surely can. So Jacob is now defeated. And this is a great place for him to be. He finally recognizes, I'm no match for God. I can't fight you. I can't wrestle you anymore. He's defeated. But notice, he's not done. He won't let go. He says, I'm not going to let you go unless you bless me. Now, this is interesting because sometimes you read this and you think, you know, he's just stubborn and, you know, he's now trying to demand terms. This isn't like him dictating terms as he did in previous occasions. Hosea chapter 12 helps us to, to see that he overcame this and sought blessing with weeping. This wasn't some like, you're going to give me this. I demand this. It was, I am broken. I can't go anymore. I'm just holding on to you and I'm weeping and I'm begging that you please bless me. I know that there's nothing I can do to earn it. There's nothing I can do. I'm just going to hang on and I'm crying and I'm weeping and I know that I've been defeated by you, but please give me a blessing. Jacob's been reduced to the place where all he can do is hold on to the Lord with everything he has. He's not fighting anymore. He can't fight anymore. He's just holding on. Not a bad place to be. That's the place where God wants him. Good, stop fighting me. Just hold on to me. Stop trying to do it on your own. Just hold on to me. Stop trying to think that you're capable in yourself and just hold on to me and realize it's only me that's going to be able to make things happen. Jacob's learning that you don't get anywhere with God by struggling and resisting him. The only way you get anywhere with God is by yielding to him and holding on to him. The sixth response from Jacob in this chapter is he wrestles with God and gets conquered and finally realizes he must trust God, not himself. You know, this is an invaluable place for every one of us to come to where God conquers us. You know, and that takes time for us. You know, we, we say, well, we give God our lives when we accept Him, but that's not usually true for most people. You know, they accept Christ, they accept what He's done, but the giving of our life away is something that takes time. That's part of that sanctification process. And oftentimes we got to get to that place where we realize God has conquered me. God has shown me that, you know what, I, I can't do it without Him. I can't handle it without Him. You know, as John's Gospel tells us in chapter 15, you know, without Him, I can do nothing. But we don't believe that, 
early on in our Christian life, where we struggle so often, we got to get to a place where we truly believe that, you know what? God has to conquer me and help me see that I can't do it on my own. I can't trust in myself. I'm not capable in my own strength of accomplishing this. I need to put my dependence completely on the Lord. Well, after this wrestling match, God gives Jacob a new name. He gave his grandfather a new name as well. He was Abraham, and he changed his name to, or Abram, he changed his name to Abraham. Jacob's no longer going to be known as the heel catcher, no longer as the schemer, no longer as the deceiver. But what I find interesting is God asks him, what's your name? Not like he didn't know. Who am I fighting here? What's your name again? No, he knew who he was. He wanted Jacob to say it. What's your name? And this would have been somewhat maybe of an embarrassment to him. He realizes, yes, I'm the heel catcher. I'm the deceiver. That's what my life's been. That's right. That's what your life's been. But it's time for your life to change, Jacob. It's time for you to no longer be that man that you've been. I want to change you. And we're going to start with your name. You're no longer going to be the heel catcher. Now I'm going to give you a new name. I'm going to give you the name Israel. Israel means God prevails. And God says, for you have struggled with God and with men and have prevailed. Jacob prevailed in the sense that he endured through this struggle and that God thoroughly conquered him. You know, when you battle with God, you only win by losing. You only win by giving up to him. You only win by recognizing, hey, you're in control and I depend on you and I give myself to you. You you never win by trying to conquer him because you always be defeated. And you've got to get to that place where you recognize like Jacob did, I can't do it. I give up, Lord. I give myself to you. I'm going to stop trying on my own, and I'm going to start depending on you. And that's when we truly prevail in the Lord. You know, Jacob thought the enemy was outside of him, being Esau. But God wants him to see, you know what, there's a bigger enemy, Jacob, and that's yourself. Your own self-reliance, your own trust in yourself, that's what I need to really destroy. That's what I need to really defeat. And that's what's going to happen. And that's what I want to do in your life. Jacob was left with a physical reminder of the lesson he learned that night for the rest of his life. His hip was going to be messed up. God didn't heal it. He left him with that. And always a reminder of that wrestling match. Always that reminder of, hey, you are not able to conquer me. And I find it interesting because before this night, Jacob was a runner. He ran from Esau. He ran from Laban. He's attempting to run from Esau again. He's somebody who's kind of trusting in himself. I'm just going to run away. I'm going to do my thing. And now he's not even capable anymore. Now he needs to really just trust in God to take care of him. You know, God loved Jacob so much that he was willing to wrestle Jacob in order to change him, in order to bring him to that place of ultimate surrender. And as we've talked through his life, we need to remember whom God loves, he disciplines. God loves you and I too much to let us just continue in our sinful self-dependence and trusting in ourselves. He loves us too much to say, you know what, yeah, you just keep living life the way you want. No, no, no. You're my child. I love you way too much to let that happen. I'm going to intervene. And if i got to wrestle you, I'm going to wrestle you. If i got to bring discipline, I'm going to bring discipline. It might be painful for you, but it's worth it because if you continue this path, it's going to be really painful for you and it's going to bring devastation to your life. And I love you too much to let that continue. And this should be a warning and an encouragement. A warning if we're stubborn like Jacob's been and we keep going down this path of doing what we want, God's going to discipline us. 
And it's going to be painful. It's going to hurt because he said, no, I love you too much to allow it. But if we'll just say, hey, Lord, I'm done with that. I trust in you. I rely on you. I'm going to obey you. Wonderful. Let's move forward. And it's going to be great. And I don't have to keep disciplining you. Let's do this together. You know, God loves us so much, He will conquer our enemies. And we so often pray that, Lord, conquer our enemies. We see these enemies. We see, you know, in our culture, we see things coming against us. But the one enemy we often don't think about, and maybe we don't want God to conquer, is look, the enemy He had to conquer in Jacob. The enemy that's within us, our own flesh, our own selfishness, our own desire to try and do it our way. And God says, hey, there's an enemy there I'm going to conquer too. I'm going to take care of that one. Because that one can be the most problematic. That one can be the one that influences all the other things that you do. And so I'm going to take care of that and bring you to that place where you finally come and depend on me and trust in me and rely on me and stop doing it yourself. So in this chapter, Jacob, he's learning. I wouldn't say he has learned. He's learning a valuable lesson, the lesson of dependence on God. Now, the reality is from this point on, he's got this new name. If you never knew where the name Israel that we use so much for the nation of Israel and the 12 tribes, well, here it comes back to Jacob, who's given this name. But when you see on the rest of the book of Genesis, he actually is referred to more as Jacob than he is as Israel, uh, which is kind of interesting because he acts more like Jacob in the future than he does like Israel. So he's learning, but he hasn't learned. He's still going to continue his deception. He's still going to continue his self-reliance. He's still going to continue to do stupid stuff like we do as well. But yet God's saying, Israel's what I want to make you into. Israel's what I'm trying to change you to become like. You are Jacob. I'm changing your name. And now I'm going to work in you to stop relying on yourself and start relying on me. And, you know, that's where God wants us. He wants us in that place of complete dependence. Trusting Him completely with our lives, saying, Lord, I'm going to stop doing it my way. I'm going to start doing it your way. I'm going to obey you and trust you. And that's a process. It's hard for us. It goes against everything in our selfishness, everything, you know, in this culture that teaches us things. And so we got to get to that place where we just say, no, Lord, I believe your way is best. I believe your timing is best, which oftentimes we don't. I believe everything about you is best. And I'm just going to trust in that and sit and rely on that and not try to do it in my own way. And that's where God wants to bring us. And for some of us, it takes longer than others because we're too stubborn. We're like Jacob, but God's going to keep working. He'll wrestle with you. He'll do what it takes to bring you to that place. He loves you too much to not do it. And so let that be an encouragement that God's going to complete what he started, but we kind of play a part as to how difficult that process is going to (laughs) be. The more we obey, the more we trust, the easier it is, the more we fight the harder it is, just like a parent with their child. You know, we're going to get them to a place where they're submissive, where they're doing what we want. It's up to them to determine how painful that's going to be, how many spankings they're going to need, how much discipline. It's all going to be dependent on whether they're willing to receive that quickly or whether they're going to fight it. And oftentimes we're just stubborn children who don't listen, who don't respond quickly, and we suffer the consequences of it. But we have a loving father who's too loving to let us just continue in our sin. And so um, Jacob's a good example of us. And he's a play, he gets, he, where God wants him is where God wants us as well. So let that be a challenge to you and encouragement to you. Any thoughts of what we see here in this chapter?